folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Crap Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. Today I'm bringing you something different. This is the story of Ted Mack and his brewery, People's Beer in Wisconsin. So Mr. Mack passed away in 2019, so I'm interviewing Clint Lanier, whose new book, Ted Mack and America's First Black-Owned Brewery, hit the market just a few months ago. This is a fascinating story of guts and activism that has inspired generations of modern brewers to pick up their mash paddles and make their mark on beer history. As the first brewery in America that was 100% Black-Owned, it stood for something more than just simple business. It was activism through capitalism. People's was only open for a few years before Mr. Mack watched the walls literally come down. He fought racism, corruption, illegal and unfair competition, and even the U.S. government before it was all over. The brewery closed in 1972, and the similarities to what the team at People's faced to what we face today literally surprised the hell out of me. Clint did a ton of research to get the book right, and I thought he did a fantastic job, spending years on the project. He started writing it in. Actually, I'll let him tell you that. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. I started in 2017, finally got it all written and submitted uh, 2023. It's finally been published. So a short six years later, um, yeah. and it's, it's done. Well, that was even one of my questions is like, kind of like, how do you even go about researching for that? You have a lot in the book and obviously we're not going to mm-hmm. go through everything you put in there, but even as far as you, know, you went back and researched kind of like what Paps was doing in 1890, 75 right. years before that, where did you even go to do that? The thing about the story is this guy decided to buy a brewery smack dab in the middle of beer country, <laughs> like traditional beer country, right? The Midwest in Wisconsin, he was 90 miles away from the biggest brewers in the world at the time. Paps and Schlitz, Miller were three of them. Of course, AB Anheuser-Busch was out in St. Louis and Coors was out in Colorado. But to tell the story, you know, I had to go out and research all these other places too and find out their stories and really just kind of research beer in the Midwest generally and then specifically all these other sort of places that had it in for them. I mean, like Blatt's is a part of the story, Valentin Blatt's Brewing Company, which was big in Milwaukee in the, in the 30s and 40s. So I had to go back and, and really kind of research their story as well. 
know. So there was a lot of it. It was everything from, like I said, newspaper archives. Researching through newspapers, just this, the rabbit holes. I mean, we think YouTube is bad when you start watching flat earth videos. This is uh, 10 times worse, man, because you start researching, you know, this one newspaper and like you find this new newspaper article from 1967, you know, in like Eau Claire or something. And they're like, okay, it's got to be somewhere else. And then you'll find another article that has like another paragraph. And okay, that's a little bit more information. And you just, you have to keep doing that and just keep looking and keep digging and and stuff. I mean, that's why it took so long. It's funny because the book, it's 80,000 words. So it's not the biggest book in the world, but everything there is. And I wanted to make sure that it was all backed up because I'm, I am not a African-American man. I'm, uh, I am a white academic and I didn't want to try to have the voice of this kind of the protagonist of my story. I didn't want to talk for him or say this is what it was like to be him. So instead I had to take the very academic route and say this is what he said. I looked at every quote that he that he gave, the stories of his life, everything that was written about him. And so to do that, I, I just had to do a ton of research. And again, it's six years and i got to be honest with you, I don't know whose return on investment is worse, yours or mine. Uh, <laughs> your, yours for your brewery or mine for my book. But I think I, once it's all said and done, you and I should buy the beer for the loser someday in person. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're close. I think we're pretty close. <laughs> well, it's the same thing with the book that I wrote too. Like at the end of the day, it takes way more hours, but uh, ultimately I think my my profit margin is definitely higher than the brewery was, but that ain't saying shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. You know, you got something to point to at the bookcase and said, I did that. Your kids yawn and say, okay, so what? But in any case, one of the questions, and you kind of brought up the, the research piece, and we're going to get into obviously a little bit more in some of the next segments, what that racism he dealt with w- was like. And obviously, it was going to be rampant in, in 70. Was that hard to uncover, would be the question. And so, were people open to discussing it? Did you have to dig through paperwork? How did you find? sort of like that laid bare, I guess. I would think people would hide it. They didn't hide it in 1970 in the Midwest. <laughs> Not like they, it might be hidden now. Yeah. Or, or it would have to be hidden now, I guess. It was probably a better way to put it. No, it, it was it was fairly out in the open. There's a graphic that I include in my book. It was all of the, it was a number of headlines just to kind of drive home the point that I was making that the press was just really infatuated with this guy and with what he did, which was being a black guy who decided to buy a brewery. And they kept reminding readers of it every time they talked about the brewery. It wasn't, you know, a brewery in Oshkosh. It was a black-owned brewery in Oshkosh, right? And it, it wasn't people's beer. It was people's beer, you know, which is owned by black people. And so there's a graphic that I have, and I have all these headlines. It's just headline after headline that reminds <laughs> you black people bought this thing, right? They used a, a different term for African-American community at the time, you know? And uh, so it was, it was really, really pretty open. I mean, maybe a surprise. Wisconsin was Man, they had a complex racial history. They're at one time kind of a hot spot for the new KKK in the 1920s. I mean, they had chapters throughout the state, including in Oshkosh. They also, the, the area that Oshkosh was within, voted for George Wallace for the Democratic primary in hmm. 1968 or whatever. I didn't vote for him, but they voted like 40% for him. Enough. So, I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, enough, right? Enough to make you go, wait, what are they thinking? So it was a very complex, racially charged area. Um, and then it has, there's a lot, a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, they were, again, it, it wasn't hard to uncover that kind of sentiment. 
every headline. And that was the thing about, about this particular episode that it made it easy in some ways to do the research was that, man, journalists were just absolutely, I don't know, they had some weird addiction to this story. They, they just kept writing about it and they would always check out. I don't know if they were wanting him to lose or, or what, but they were really interested in a group of black people buying a brewery in Oshkosh. I mean, I'll just put it that way. Throughout Wisconsin, everybody was, was I, I don't know how many stories, hundreds of stories were published about this. Just incredible. Yeah, I was surprised so, when I went to do a little, just some basic research that how many things popped up. There's even little articles and stuff it shared. And quite frankly, before I heard about the book, I had never heard about the brewery. So obviously that's on me. I wasn't searching the right things, I guess. But yeah, it's out there. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, it is. And it's it's a very small population that really knows it, uh, knows about it rather, knows knows the story. But like I said, there was sure interest in it in 1970 because every every writer from the Milwaukee Sentinel and, and every other paper in the, in the state was just, just on him uh, like crazy and following kind of his every move. They were at the stockholders meeting, which is crazy for a medium-sized brewery. I mean, you know, why would they go to the stockholders meeting for, you know, this brewery in the middle of nowhere? Why would they care? Well, they cared because a group of black people bought it. <laughs> and we can, we can get more into that, you know, maybe my speculation about that. But it was, to answer your question, go all the way around. It was not difficult to find you know, that information that, that sort of demonstrated some of the stuff that he had to go through at the time. Yeah, that seems crazy to me. So talk to me a little bit about, because you did that research about like what the, the marketplace was like in 1970. Obviously, my goal is to uncover kind of what's going on in craft beer in 2023 mm-hmm. and those drops and those big struggle pieces. And, and that seems to have happened mm-hmm. a couple other times in recent history as well. But it sounds like there was a lot going on that was sort of a negative pressure on the business. And I'm just curious from your perspective, kind of what you saw from the consolidation piece as you were uh, looking up you know, what AB was doing, the unfair practices. Mm-hmm. Like, What was the marketplace like that Ted walked into? <laughs> God. Okay. Well, let's see. Um, so what was it like in 1970? What was the beer industry like in 1970? Okay. I guess the Put it one way, if you would have to be crazy in 1970 to buy a brewery, crazier than you would in like 2011, for example, because it, it was it was the, the high point of the concentration of the beer industry. So to really understand it, you have to go back to pre-prohibition, right? Pre-prohibition, you had a number of breweries that were coming up. And say like 1899, 1900, the brewing industry was was really scattered and shattered. And you had a lot of regional brewers out of necessity because you couldn't really ship beer. Beer would spoil, didn't have a shelf life per se. Refrigeration was just starting out in the late, late 19th century. You know, you wouldn't find it in saloons or anything like that. Bottled beer was not, it wasn't unheard of, but it was it was very difficult. Bottles were handmade, for example, so they were, they were pretty expensive. Um, you had these funky cork systems to seal bottles and stuff like that. Again, they didn't really have a good shelf life. So most of the beer was bought and sold in taverns. Very regional because you'd have taverns that were tied to breweries. So like Blatt's would have its own taverns. Paps would have its own taverns. And they just sold you know, their own brands and stuff. And this was actually sort of constant. I mean, things didn't change that much until, you know, 19... We always think of, of the Volstead Act and Prohibition, like 1919, 1920. But actually... A lot of people don't realize that beer production pretty much stopped in America in about 1917. Uh, there was an act that was passed for World War One, and it bade brewers from using grain during World War One because of the war effort. Uh, and it was stupid because it was passed right at the end of World War One. 
Actually, it went into effect in like 1918, right as we got out. So from 1918 to 1919, they could, really couldn't produce. And then 1919, Prohibition was enacted. 1920 uh, was the Volstead Act, which actually supported Prohibition and enforced Prohibition, right? At that point, a lot of them were regional. Now, you had bigger ones. So you had Blatt's and you had Papp's and you had Schlitz and you had Miller and some larger ones. But they were still regional. I mean, you couldn't drink Papp's in, in Los Angeles, for example, or Oregon, you know? They had their own beer. But you could, you could drink it probably... Uh, within a few states, right? Chicago, you certainly could and stuff like that. And then, so you've got this this period of about 13 years where America is quote unquote dry. And big brewers had to do something else. So they switched to making non-alcoholic beer. They switched to soda or something like that. But those with reserves of money and, and a lot of brewers knew that it wasn't going to last. And they were pretty confident that prohibition would uh, go away eventually. So those that had money, like Anheuser-Busch especially, had large uh, reserves of cash because they were family owned. It was all in the family, had no shareholders or anything like that. They started investing their money in, in things like distribution and you know, innovating in, in ways like refrigeration. And so like Anheuser-Busch, for example, creating some of the first refrigerated train cars so that they can now ship their products wherever they wanted to. Now, this was done during Prohibition, so they were shipping near beer, they were shipping to the copper, stuff like that. Prohibition ends, and out of the 13,000, I think like 750, thereabouts, reopen in America. A lot of the smaller breweries and kind of mom and pop, very regional, very small places, maybe a saloon, maybe like we would think of a microbrewery at a, at a restaurant or something like that today. A lot of those just didn't open. About 750 of them did open. Now, out of that 750, you had literally a handful, maybe 10, that had really innovated during the time off. Foremost among those was Anheuser-Busch, but also Paps and Schlitz, Miller and Coors, and those, the, those were the, really the big ones. <clears throat> they did things like refrigerated train cars, refrigeration systems, pasteurization systems. They uh, innovated in, in ways like automating the, the process so they could automate, you know, what we take, we could do that for a three barrel system now, but, you know, they didn't even have it. They would actually have to manually turn handles and cranks <laughs> and everything else in these, you know, 50,000 barrel systems, but now they can just automate it mechanically through steam and so forth. So they innovated in all these ways and they immediately set about just bludgeoning every other brewery that was in, in business at the time. This started with the small regional places around where they were, killed all of them. I mean, just wiped them out. And they just started moving out. So by 1970, you had like 140 or 130 something breweries left in America. From Amazingly small amount. Like, it, yeah, it's crazy. Oh, it's tiny, right? Yeah. 130, 140. People's Brewing Company, which is the one that he bought, that was one of those that somehow had survived. And I know how they survived. It was by kind of staying true to their purpose. They specialized really in tavern, in kegs only. They didn't put a lot of money into canned beer or canned beer at all, really, or bottled beer. They stuck with tavern beer, which is still in 1970. People still went to the bars and still went to taverns and so forth. Not like they did pre-prohibition, but because again, pre-prohibition beer was mainly bought at taverns. They didn't have grocery stores. Uh, and if you bought it for home consumption, you would literally buy a bucket of it and <laughs> pour it into a bucket and haul it home, which I, I would love to do sometime. That would be um, interesting. Yeah. How do you, how do you not spill it? I guess you're <laughs> Tell your horse to drive. Yeah, forward. right. Right, exactly. So that was that was the industry what he bought. I mean, and that was just that's just a quick. I mean, there were so many other things, but it's really hard to compete against when you're making. I think twenty thousand barrels a year, twenty five thousand barrels a year, approximately, is what uh, Peoples was doing when he bought it in nineteen seventy. Well, ninety miles away in Milwaukee, you know, you've got six million barrels being pumped out every year from Paps. It's just how do you how do you compete, right? You've got 
nationwide advertising in every form, from billboards to newspaper to, to television, radio, just on and on and on and on. In fact, there was a lawsuit. It was in like 1953, 1954, somewhere around there. There was a lawsuit. The federal government sued Anheuser-Busch, I believe, for trying to create a monopoly. What they did was they bought a competitor and then immediately closed it down, which is it's what monopolies do, right? Buy competitors and shut them down. So they're sued by the federal government, and obviously the federal government won in that case. Budweiser was slapped on the wrist and had to pay like a million dollars or something stupid. But the judge in that case said that it would cost about $35 million to open up a brewery that was able to compete with like the six largest breweries in America at the time. Now that it doesn't sound like that much, right? $35 million. But let's say instead of $35 million, let's say $3.5 million. In 1970, was $28 million today. You're looking at you know, a factor of 10. So we're looking at $350 million or something like that today, right? Is what it would cost to compete. If you wanted to open up a brewery that would compete with Coors, maybe not Anheuser, we'll see what happens after the yeah. free fall that they're in. But let's say Modelo, it would cost $350 million just to build the brewery to do it. Right. And that would be including all the advertising and everything else. Now, that was in 1953. And in 1953, there were, I think, double. There were about 400 breweries left. But by the time you get to 1970 with about 140 breweries, man, honestly, you know, his decision to, to do that was probably, as a business decision, it was probably a, a terrible business decision. <laughs> it was really just a, the worst industry you could possibly get into, I think, at any, any given time. I wouldn't have argued that I don't know how much different that is in 2023. But I want to hear a little bit about what he did. And again, a lot of this is in the book, but let's just cover two high points on it. But let me take a really quick break and we'll be right back. Sure. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Okay, welcome back. I'm actually really excited to talk about this part. So he tried to buy a brewery first. Well, let's back up mm-hmm. a little bit. Somehow, Mr. Mac, which I think is an amazing feat, gets together a bunch of other like-minded people that all agree with him. That it's a fantastic mm-hmm. idea to open a black-owned brewery in the racist, maybe not capital, but close to the racist capital of the United States in <laughs> some of the worst economic environment as far as beer goes. You saw the source material. What was that like? Like, how did he get these guys on board? I mean, some were his friends, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, Mac was a civil rights activist. He was a manager at Pabst. I mean, he was. He was a, a kind of a medium-level manager at Pabst there in Milwaukee. He was also a life insurance salesman. At night, he moonlighted for New York Life and was really good at it before he became with Paps, he was a social worker for Milwaukee County who worked for the welfare department. So those were the kind of roles that he filled. But I think and people have called him an entrepreneur, a black businessman, a black capitalist, and so on and so forth. But I really call him a civil rights activist more than anything else. And he, he started his civil rights activism 
pretty much right after he got out of college, early 1960s in Milwaukee. And I mean, the type of civil rights activism that we think of when we think of civil rights activism, which is marching in the street with a sign, Martin Luther King Jr. type of civil rights activism, right? He didn't just share um, shit on Facebook, you mean? He did something different? He, yeah, exactly. He didn't just tweet <laughs> stuff. And, and he also didn't dress up in black and beat the crap out of people. Um, he actually did worthwhile stuff. So, But he was a civil rights activist kind of first and foremost. And in Milwaukee ha- has a very kind of unique civil rights activism history. It was sort of a flashpoint civil rights activism in the 1960s. A lot of the leadership of those movements in the early 60s, and he was really active from about 60 to 65, 66, something like that. And then activism took a little bit of a different, more militant turn. And he wasn't as involved in that sort of like the street protest, you know, where people hitting each other and stuff. He was more of a of the picketing type of stuff. And a lot of those leaders, he became really good friends with. And that leadership, well, they became leaders in the community, in the black community. And Milwaukee is a very segregated city. Even today, they have a North Milwaukee. There's a, they call it the inner core, which through redlining, that's sort of where black residents were relegated. And so he, that's the area that he was in. And he met uh, he became friends with a lot of leadership. So flash forward to 1968. I don't know exactly when the idea takes hold, but he decides to put together a coalition and buy another brewery. He finds out that Pabst, so Pabst did exactly what Anheuser-Busch did that I just told you about. In ni- 1958, Pabst buys its competitor, Valentin Blatst, uh, which at the time, Blatst was like the 13th biggest nation. Hmm. Um, so they buy Blatst and they immediately shut it down. <laughs> they mothball the, uh, the brewery which was there in another Milwaukee brewery. So it was literally an in-town competitor. Shut them down, mothball the place, use it, start using it as a warehouse. The U.S. government immediately files a lawsuit against them for unfair business practices. Again, you know, violating laws that lead towards monopolies and so and more concentration of the beer industry. And that goes on. That kind of lawsuit goes back and forth for about 10 years until finally, I believe it was 1968, the U.S. government, the federal government wins the lawsuit and orders apt to divest from blacks. So that means that they have to now sell blacks somehow. The U.S. government is concerned that there's too much concentration on the beer industry. In other words, getting smaller and smaller and the number of competitors is getting smaller. But we need you now, perhaps, to, to sell blacks to somebody else so that it could be a separate entity and there could be another competitor in the beer industry. That was the government's reasoning or thinking for this divestment. Mr. Mack, Ted Mack, is working for Pabst in 1968, so he would be privy to what's going on. He Mm. finds out about it. He immediately puts together a coalition of black businessmen from North Milwaukee, calls it United Black Enterprises. Uh, There are other business leaders. One is, you know, the bank managers and their um, insurance company owners and stuff like that, the people that he knows. People have means as well as leadership positions in that community. Puts together this coalition and he quits Pabst and decides to buy Blatt's. And so they, they make a bid for Blatt's. And that's a whole <laughs> other episode. But that yeah. that's sort of, that was his first kind of foray into, uh, you know what, we're going to buy a brewery. Well, that one, a couple of things that struck me on that deal was that one, they raised what sounds like $7 million, which in right. 1970 is an absolute immense amount of money for people who haven't been in the industry. And you know, obviously, it's expensive. And the other piece of that is that they were buying a brewery that had been closed almost as long as I owned mine. And I can't even <laughs> right. comprehend 
what my brewery would have looked like 10 years, 11 years shuttered, not just the amount of money they would have to invest in infrastructure to get it up to operating speed, but I mean, you don't even know what what shit's broken, right? At that point, like it's just sitting in there. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. No, they they, they were able to find, you know, they found some, some banks that, you know, black business at the time was sort of within the black community, you know, and that includes banks. I mean, there were banks that were owned, you know, people within the black community and they really just catered to the black community because nobody else would, would give black business owners loans or anything like that or even black homeowners loans. It was a segregation without the label, I guess. Yeah. You know? But that's sort of what it was in America. But he found two of these, two or three of these banks on the East Coast that were black owned and they were going to front the money. I think they actually might have gotten up to about $9 million, but it would have cost a lot more had they been successful in that bid because, yeah, the place is closed for 10 years. Paps was using it as a warehouse. As far as I know, the equipment was in it. But I mean, you know, we're looking at it. I mean, the innovation that took place in the beer industry from God, 1950 to 1970 was incredible in those 20 years. New ways of, of doing things, you know, more efficient and, and uh, effective ways of, of making beer and just the production line. I mean, the bottling lines, things like that. The innovation was huge, and the brewery had none of that. So they were going to buy this old brewery mm-hmm. that was out of date and try to refab it up to uh, to modern standards at that time. It would, I think, there were estimates that that were fifteen, twenty five, thirty million dollars to do that at that time, which kind of would would make sense. But I mean, they fired their first shot, right? They got they got commitments and they got seven million bucks, which I'm not going to go to the U.S. government's website because they'll probably tell me they can't do it. But you know, that might be I don't know, fifty million or twenty million or something like that today. I, I can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I couldn't get that loan. That was quite an accomplishment. Yeah, well, it sounds like it was a good thing that they didn't end up buying because I think that would have been a much bigger struggle than what they did face. But because it's a seminal piece of this story to me, during the process of trying to buy Blatt's is when Harold Jackson made his famous comment, we're going to be all black. And somehow that became, and that was sort of, you talked about those headlines, a big part, I think, of what had happened there. What did he say? Or I guess maybe you could say it better than me. Sure, sure. So Harold Jackson gave an interview. Uh, So Harold Jackson was the spokesman for United Black Enterprises. Harold Jackson was a lawyer, an attorney there in Milwaukee, and a very accomplished one. He was an assistant district attorney for the for Milwaukee County, the first black one, black assistant district attorney. He ends up becoming, gosh, like president of the public schools. And I mean, he's a very accomplished person. But he gives an interview and he says that when, or it's a press conference rather, and he says that if if United Black Enterprises is successful at getting black, they are going to hire an all black workforce. So management, you know, obviously ownership, workers, line workers, everybody, it's just going to be black. And that blew up, as you can imagine. I mean, that would blow up probably today <laughs> if somebody came out, came out and said, yeah, we're going to buy cores and everybody's going to be black or whatever. You know? Could you imagine? Well, especially um, in Milwaukee. like <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. In Milwaukee. I mean, that's, yeah. Uh, let's drop a race bomb yeah. right in the middle of the city. And so people lost their minds. And. It was kind of funny. He he said, you know, white people can put restrictions on who they're going to hire. Nobody says a word about you know black person. And obviously, they, we'll we'll get into some some reasons for that. You know, why it was still for them, everybody to get upset. But you have to understand though that UBE United Black Enterprises, their mission was to raise the black community. It wasn't to be necessarily beer producers or whatever it was. That just happened to be the industry that they bought into. The purpose of the group and the purpose of Ted Mack doing this in the first place was he saw an opportunity to 
do something for the black community. And, and it's because his idea of activism shifted from the early 1960s to the late 1960s. And he saw that picketing outside of a, of a, an A&E or something is fine, you know, to try to get more jobs for people in the black community is fine, but to really affect change, they had to do something big and dramatic for themselves. And for him, it was buying a brewery and hiring an all black staff to, to man it. And then again, the, I don't know what the population I'd say is like 80% white population <laughs> just lost, lost their minds at the prospect. And, and so that, that, that got them into the papers for sure. You know, that got them a lot of press, which is um, probably good. And obviously bad, right? they say no, no press, yeah, bad press yeah. but right. Well, that, that might've been worse press. I mean, and I don't think they're expecting it. I, I, I think they were genuinely going, you know, what do we do? You know, what do we do yeah. wrong? I and mean, we're just, and especially, and, and that was sort of the thing, especially that nobody worked for blacks. That's the important thing to remember. Blacks didn't exist. Right. And the U.S. government was, was reinventing blacks, was resurrecting blacks, I guess you could say. And so if they bought it, it would be a clean slate. You know, they would hire whoever they wanted to hire to, to run it. And they just wanted to hire people from the black community because that was the whole purpose of buying it in the first place was to give them, give the black community an outlet within Milwaukee that would you know, be dedicated to employment for these people. 1970 is a tough time for everybody, and especially for the black community. Unemployment was terrible. And, you know, they didn't they didn't have a lot to hold their heads up for. So this would have been something that would would have really helped them. Yeah, well, on paper, sounds like a great idea. So you've got people. Yeah. There's breweries today that are sort of doing the same thing, You're using black owned mm-hmm. as a, a moniker to get attention. And I had asked because one of the things that about the story that fascinates me most is kind of what happens in 50 years later and, and how that impacts the world today. And so I asked a guy who has a black owned brewery in Atlanta what he thought. I thought I'd play the clip for you if you got a second. You're not going anywhere. Sure. Nope. (laughs) It's too easy in America to become monolithic. So if you say you're a black beer brand, people are going to think, oh, that's beer for black people. Or enlightened people who may come in the door. But even at this stage, it's sort of claiming a space and not having it be what it's truly intended to be, which is a brewery, which is a place all kinds of people can come together. But we don't want to not claim who we are. So it sounds like they're still struggling in a sense with like, how do we say we're black owned brewery without alienating white people, Hispanic God. people? Like, and that's 2023 in Atlanta, right? Where, in my opinion, should be cool. It should be fine. Like, I don't know. Good Lord. That is such a profound statement. Uh, you know, and we we might get into this later, but you know, that's something that Ted Mack struggled with. I mean, truly struggled with. And I can see that through the interviews that he gave and the quotes he gave and so forth. He wanted to help the black community, but he didn't want to be known as a black beer. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and he didn't want to be known as a black businessman. He wanted to be known as a businessman. He didn't want to be known as a black capitalist, just a capitalist. So that's something that, that he really struggled with was exactly what that gentleman said. So it's 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 so sad that, you know, 50 years later, still dealing with that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are, there are more black owned breweries. So that's the win. Some of those guys are doing it well and making really great beer. But and maybe it's going to be a long time before it goes away. But at least it's some progress, I guess. Right. But, yeah, absolutely. Well, so then the blast thing didn't work out. And he was not mm-hmm. going to be dissuaded. So he decided he was going to purchase Peoples. And this purchase ended up being a little bit different, right? So he, he's still buying a brewery. This one had been mm-hmm. struggling and declining, it sounds like, over the last few years. Mm-hmm. 
but it was at least in business. So he had some revenue. Right. But yeah, so what was that like? He, this one's only 440000 it sounds like. You got a little better deal on this one? <laughs> yeah, much better deal. <laughs> well, it was a much smaller, much smaller prospect too. Yeah, you know, Peoples, Peoples was an old brewery. It wasn't as old as, as a lot of them. Relatively new, actually, in, in Wisconsin. It was open in 1911, started producing in 1913, versus all the others were open in the, the 19th century. Oshkosh was pretty loyal to the regional brands. So there were two, well, there are three brands in Oshkosh uh, by the 1960s. There was uh, RAR, R-A-H-R. There was Oshkosh Brewing Company, OBC, and then Peoples. You know, they were doing 20, 25,000 barrels a year, something like that, which was was not their capacity. I think OBC was about 40,000, 45,000. RAR was smaller, about 30,000. And I think Peoples was about 30,000 as well. So that was their capacity. They're making much less than that. And they were just getting shellacked by Pabst, really. Pabst was the big one, you know, that, that kind of moved into the markets. People forget how big Pabst was at one point, but it was just huge. So he bought this one. It wasn't necessarily failing. It just wasn't doing any, anything. <laughs> it was sort of, sort of sitting in neutral more than anything else. Uh, Oshkosh Brewing Company, when your capacity is 40,000, you're making 25,000. You're, you're not doing too well. When your capacity is 30,000, you're making 25,000. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 20, 25,000. It's a little bit better. Looks better on paper, as you say. But, you know, Peoples was, it just wasn't doing anything, really. It was just, wasn't really making money. wasn't really losing money. It was totally paying for itself. But I think he saw an opportunity with a regional brewery that had, you know, just had potential. He saw that it could, it could grow and, and it could, it could, could expand. Because remember, it's, its business model had always been kegs and selling to taverns more than anything else. They, they got into bottled beer after Prohibition, but that still wasn't kind of like the, their main thing. The others, Oshkosh Brewing Company and RAR, had uh, done quite a bit more with bottles, but Peoples was, was more about, about kegs and, and about taverns, and that was just steady. I mean, it was steady. Again, it's like never, you know, working at the same place for 20 years and never getting a raise. Yeah, you know, you're getting whatever you're getting, but <laughs> you see everybody else doing better than you. But I guess he saw potential in it. He thought it had potential, and I think he saw an opportunity to expand it more than anything else. And so that's what they settled on. He kept the same organization. They didn't call themselves United Black Enterprises, but it was essentially the same organization, with the exception of Harold Jackson. I don't know the story behind him not making an appearance for this this round, but he left the organization, and the rest of them pretty much stayed on. And then he bought it, and it was April 24th, 1970, is when the stockholders for Peoples agreed to, uh, to sell. So then they took over, like you reported, got some immediate bad press, but then also got some good press. And then it mm-hmm. sounds like Ted's whole idea was to build something that was a, not only a black owned brewery, but a beer for black people. And he really expected that kind of the black people would rally together, rally behind him and really push the brewery up. But right out of the gates, there was a big ass boycott. It sounds like. Yeah, right. Which, yeah. I yeah. can't even imagine, that, and I always obviously the whole point is to look at this story and imagine like if you're going to buy a brewery today, I can't even imagine what would happen if you bought a brewery and had an immediate 25% sales reduction because of a boycott. Everyone right. else would have just been like, I'm out. I know breweries that have been open right. six months, and I can't <laughs> imagine the balls it took to stick it out. And so what exactly happened? Like, why was there a boycott? That one was sheer racism. Well, the the end result, I don't like to blame that on racism, but this was bigotry at its worst. You know, it was, you know, a bunch of tavern owners... And townspeople in Oshkosh got together and said that a group of black people is buying peoples. These rumors started flying. Well, the first rumor 
was that they were going to fire all of the white employees and replace them with black employees. That rumor was started because somebody from, I think it was a Milwaukee Sentinel, essentially called back to what Harold Jackson had said for the Blatt's Brewery. Uh, and Harold Jackson said, we're going to hire nothing but black employees. So they basically called back to that. And that led to everybody saying, oh, they're going to fire all the white people and hire black people. And that pissed everybody off. The reason everybody voted for George Wallace in that area is not necessarily because of racial issues. It was because George Wallace was saying that I would protect your jobs. Mm. Uh, Lyndon Johnson will not protect your jobs. I will. And Wallace said that these black community is going to take your jobs if LBJ gets into office. So what happens in like two years later, they see this episode where, oh, this is proof of exactly what Wallace <laughs> said. There's a South Park episode, and I think it might have been titled, they're, they're taking our jobs or something. It was a stupid episode. Anyway, I'll go look it up on South Park if you like that. But um, it was sort of one of those things. They're taking our jobs. So it started with that. And then from there, the rumors became, oh, they're going to make it into a black beer. They're going to change the formula. They're going to change the name, on and on and on and on. And it became this kind of maelstrom that he had to then sort of weather and fight back against because there was no truth to any of it. Mm. It was it was just merely a, a bigoted kind of a backlash for him buying it. And some of it, I think, can be accredited to the fact that in Wisconsin, beer was a very cultural icon and the culture was Bavarian. And a lot of the residents of that area were had kind of German ancestry. I mean, they're like two generations removed, perhaps, if that much. So they recognize it as sort of a white thing, basically. And then all of a sudden, this black group comes into this white thing and, hmm. and you know, start clutching their pearls. That led to this backlash and boycott. The first thing he had to do then was fight against that. And imagine deciding to buy a brewery and immediately... The first thing you have to do is calm down everybody. I'm not going to take your jobs. I'm not going to change the formula. I'm not going to change the name. We're not catering to black. No, and his quote is, we're not making a black beer, we're not making a white beer. We're making a people's beer. So that forced him off the path of trying to really market to the black community. Now he had to be careful because he's all he's told all these white people, hey, we're, we're just a beer company. How could then he shift to the black people? Hey, we're a black beer company, right? So I think that led to a lot more problems than just the initial 25% loss of business, which alone is pretty bad. Especially when you're scraping together investors and like you have a business plan and all of a sudden your sales are 25% less than you thought. It just yes. puts you behind for everything, right. including the marketing that it would take to take the boycott away. <laughs> like anything right. you would need to help right. fight it, you know, you're just, your bullets are taken out of your gun essentially at that point. So yeah, that right. sucks. You talked a little bit about how he wanted the, like, the, again, the black community to do it and they were concerned that he was going to change the recipe and you know, the white people more, I guess, were concerned that he's going to change the recipe. I didn't get to taste it. I think you got to go out to the brewery that's currently making it, but I did get to have the brewer out there give me the tasting notes, which I'm going to play for you right after this okay. break. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. 
Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, thanks for sticking around. So I will give you a chance to tell everybody what you tasted, but I was curious to reach out to the brewer who's currently making the beer and asked him what the whole point of it was and what he was trying to uh, brew. So let me play that for you right now. You know, it tastes like something in the past that has quality on top of it. It's essentially close to a German lager, but a little more malty, but not heavy. It has a little sweetness, not a lot of sweetness. You get a little bit of the uh, flake corn. I'm going to tell you that it's flake corn in it. <laughs> and it's just really refreshing. And this is something you can drink throughout the year. So no matter where you are, the people's lager will hit the spot. They had to throw a sales pitch in there too, but sounds like a great beer. <laughs> yeah. And he was very uh, guarded with the overall recipe. He did, he did mention that the yeah. yeast is sort of the star of that. It was a challenge for them to get the yeast and kind of redo mm-hmm. that, but had a lab work with them. So, anyway, mm-hmm. what did you taste when you went out there? What, what was the beer like? It's uh, it is good. I mean, it's, it's really refreshing. The the cornflake uh, taste is is definitely there. The uh, you know the flaked corn. You know, in the Wisconsin area, they grew a lot of corn, right? In the St. Louis area, they grew a lot of rye. So you're going to use kind of the adjutants that that are in the area, and so that's sort of what they did to to expand their their sugars and so forth. And you know, it, it's good. He was right about a little bit maltier, so it's not like the very vapid yellow crappy lagers that were made by like paps for example like you know, some of the competitors the original um recipe for schlitz if anybody's ever tried the original schlitz which they tried to recreate you know which Schlitz it was bought more uh i think it was bought by kind of a craft brewing consortium maybe 10 or 15 years ago or something like that and they tried to recreate the original taste but it's a much maltier type of lager um and, and you can see how schlitz became really really popular this is sort of like that. So it's got that sweet, malty taste, but then it has that kick from the lager. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, so obviously that, that's an important piece. I don't know if you've listened to the, any of my episodes, but I always say I don't interview assholes who made shitty beer and ugly packaging. So it was important for me to <laughs> get an idea of what he made. And you know what I mean? If the brewery goes out of business and they made bad beer, okay, we get it. But it sounded to me like from reading your book that where I think, you know, had may have made some mistakes. I, I don't think that they were mistakes anybody else wouldn't have made. Um, and I was curious whether the beer was good. And it sounds like it really was. Um, and so, obviously, they were selling a bunch of it when he bought it. And they sold more of it after he opened or after he continued it. So Yeah. He just left it as it was. I mean, he kept his master brewer. who was there before him. Just kept him. Kept the recipe. Kept everything else. And it's, and it's the recipe that had been around since, like, 1913. What was interesting is post-prohibition, people wanted higher alcohol beer and they wanted more taste like a really tasty beer because you know they really didn't drink beer during prohibition they drank a lot of liquor and so they weren't used to so they wanted something with taste in it mm-hmm. so the really light beers that we have today people didn't go for those in like 1933 but people's kept the exact same recipe before and after prohibition so they were always kind of a really hearty type of lager Versus again the really vapid, super light stuff like uh, that we see nowadays from yeah. brands that shall not be named. <laughs> I don't mind. You can talk shit all you want. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about the business side. Because again, I I, mm-hmm. I feel sure. like whereas there are a lot of things that are unique to the people's beer story, uh, unfortunately, I hear various versions of the same story over and over. So he gets in, 
and we're starting the process. Yep. He's got the brewery. He has the boycott. Didn't have quality issues, but there was a perception of quality issues, which I, by the way, think he did an amazing job of proving that, which I will leave for someone who reads the book. I think it's cool. But he had a bunch of pivots. And so this is what you see a lot. So we were pivoting from distribution to on-premise to mail order or whatever it is in the brewery. And he had dealt with a lot of that. So right out of the bat, bought his competitor, Oshkosh, like fairly Oshkosh, quickly. Yeah. Obviously, that was a huge choice. And so he said he did it because sales were slow. And so that's an interesting argument, right? Like sales are slow, so I need to buy my competitor. I assume he thought that sales would pick up from that, but you know, in hindsight, and I'm not surprised that it didn't make a huge difference. But how did Oshkosh come available? Just was it struggling at the time? Yeah, it was. Um, so on the side for Ted, actually, one of the first things he did was he released a, a Christmas lager, which is a higher alcohol, darker lager. He announced that in December. Sort of gives a hint of his mindset. He said that we need to have different minds, you know, because they just had people beer which was this this lighter lager and i just thought said that it's not light it's not the light in terms of cores or something like that it was it was a different type of light but you know versus like a like a bach or something like that so they release this christmas bach higher alcohol darker richer I, and the reason he says he does is because we need to have different lines and if it proves popular we're going to keep it well apparently it didn't prove popular because they didn't keep it so it's just <laughs> kind of a christmas holiday beer but he's got it in his mind that they need to have more than just one product right he's on the lookout for it okay in the meanwhile oshkosh brewing company which is the his closest competitor in terms of region like they're literally across the street but that's the reason that company is the reason people actually exist there's this feud between the owners of them. If you read the book, you'll read all about this, this huge feud they had. In 19, gosh, it was early 1960s, I guess. Oshkosh Brewing Company is bought by an heir to another brewing company, Fortune. Okay. This guy is in line to run one of the biggest breweries in the world, but he's not, he's not the owner yet. And he gets impatient and he's like, Oh, well, my own. And uh, he goes out and uh, buys. Oshkosh Brewing Company, because he just can't wait to own his own brewery. And he immediately runs it into the fucking ground. He starts screwing with the recipe. He starts, you know, trying to figure out ways to make the place more efficient. He starts using like corn syrup instead of actually malting, you know, corn and stuff like that. And the quality of the beverage just goes to crap. Hmm. And within, within a few years, Oshkosh is selling just nothing and just losing money. And he's like, I want out, you know, and he's like, okay, I've, I've run this thing, you know, into the ground. The guy's a millionaire. I mean, he's getting residuals from this, from the big beer company that his family owns. And so the employees of Oshkosh get together and give him a bid. He's like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Let's take it. So they take it. Now the employees have it. And by the way, he goes off and ruins another, his family's legacy. He ruins that too. <laughs> the, ground. the employees sort of take over and they try their best for about two or three years. But by the time they take it over, the reputation's mud, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just toast. And people are staying away from that product because the last two or three years, it's been crap. And they take it back to the old recipe, you know, the old ingredients, everything else. They just don't know. By the time, at the end of 1971, rolls around, they're just looking for, you know, an exit. And that's what Ted provides them. So Ted doesn't buy the brewery. He buys the recipes and writes the names and buys the wine. So they had like uh, Chief Oshkosh was one of the main beers they had. They had a couple of others. They had about three wines. And that's what he was looking for was he wanted to diversify within his own company. So they were going to be making them out of the people's brewing company, the production line there. You'll have to see if it works or not. But 
you know, he, he decides that that's sort of a way for them to, to make money is to have, uh, is to diversify a little bit through lines. Was he trying to almost keep that secret, do you think, in a sense that the market wouldn't necessarily know that Oshkosh was the black-owned brewery guy? Or was it all just under the same label as people's? I don't think – he wasn't trying to keep it a secret. I mean, they had a press conference about it in like November of 71, I believe. Thereabouts, fall of 71. You know, I think there was there was some camaraderie there. You know, the brewing community within a within a small town, as I've seen, has always been – there are a-holes everywhere. But, you know, for the most part – People are really good. You know, you've got owners of different breweries. They typically get together and talk about stuff that's going on. And, and they're, they're usually very congenial. And I think that's what it was there as well. And, you know, I think they were, they were friendly. I'm not going to say that the owners were friends, <laughs> but I think, you know, Ted Mack was certainly friendly with them. So I don't think there was any animosity when it happened. And, you know, I think it, you know, it hit the papers and you know, he tried to produce the lines, but I don't know if it, how, how much it really helped. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Obviously, if you can buy additional brands and effectively contract them out of your excess capacity, then you've got very little expense to produce that. So, in a sense, it should have worked, right? But like we said, we'll we'll get into that. So, another thing that you had talked about that I thought was interesting, he made one of his big arguments with those government contracts that the SBA during his loan process had guaranteed him that he'd be able to get into the bases or just in general government contracts. And again, we've all done something like this before. I, I use the example when a distributor tells you that they want to carry you before you're open or while you're in construction. And I get people say this to me all the time, like, yeah, I'm going to open a brewery. I've already got distributor XYZ, you know, guaranteed to carry me. That is not true at all. Similar to the government contracts. Yeah. They're like, yeah, oh, sure. We'll give you all the government contracts. Like, which ones exactly? Oh, oh they, they don't exist. So anyways, like, I don't really hold that against him. Uh, He was told that he didn't know that they didn't exist, but that's bullshit. And that definitely struggled. I can only imagine when his whole plan was kind of surrounding that. And then it sounds like he dealt with a lot of issues from unfair competition. And you went into some of that, but there were some lawsuits. There was some stuff in the the book. I wasn't surprised that it happened. I was just surprised that it's still Mm -hmm. happening half a century later. (laughs) So what kinds of things did you, did you uncover in your research? Like what was he dealing with as far as that goes? Well, um, God, man, I mean, the lengths that they went to, there's a reason why these these particular companies got so big and it wasn't just a stupid refrigeration for anybody out there who's yelling at me right now. They were ruthless. You know, these companies, I'm sure there's, it's all of them. But there were five in particular that the SEC filed lawsuits against. Matter of fact, they had a, a they had an investigation going from like 1970, early 1970s, ended about 74, 75, and they uncovered that that the five biggest, which were Schlitz, Blatt, Miller, Coors, and, and Isaac Bush, did things like well, I mean, first of all, we already know that they would buy competitors and close them down. That was kind of a classic thing. Another thing they would do is they would manipulate the prices of a region. And so what they would do is they would go into a region, they would lower their prices so low that they would be basically losing money on their cases of beer. And this is when they were selling them to the liquor stores or to the stores that would carry them, okay? Not necessarily to the people. So if you are a liquor store owner and you've got Anheuser-Busch coming at you, they'll say, and they say, hey, we'll sell you a case of beer for a buck fifty, Right. And then you've got any other beer for two fifty. Okay. Obviously I'm gonna I'm gonna buy the two fifty dollar case as well. But then when I turn around and sell them, then what am I gonna do? Uh, I'm gonna do things like a a discount Budweiser, I won't discount the other one. Mm-hmm. So the other one will be five bucks a case, Budweiser will be three dollars a case. So that's that's the obvious thing. But then I'll do other things because the more Budweiser I sell, the more money I make because they're giving me cut rate. So I'll put all the Budweiser right up front. The stuff that's two fifty a, a case from the locals, 
that goes on the bottom shelf at the very back of my store. That doesn't make any difference. I've actually had a distributor tell me that doesn't make impact your sales at all to do that. <laughs> it doesn't, no, absolutely not. Yeah, placement doesn't, doesn't make a difference at all. Uh, also, signage. You know, what signage am I going to put up? I'm going to put Budweiser everywhere. The local brewery. Yeah, I'm not even going to put a sign up. They'll be lucky. I don't care what they send me. It's all going to be in the back office. And that's totally illegal. Completely illegal. And then what, what they would do is they would force the regional competitors out of business and then they would crank the prices again after those are out of places are out of business. Another thing they would do is just straight bribery. They would uh, do something called black bagging where they would pay off liquor stores and they would pay off chains that would have them on tap to basically either not put the others on tap or put them more prominently on tap or only you know, put signage up for them. In the investigation at that time in the 70s, companies like Holiday Inn, 7-Eleven, various restaurant chains, they were found that they were being bribed to only put certain brands on tap and not others. So if you're a regional brewery and you don't have money, matter of fact, I think it was Paps, I think it was Paps, it might have been Schlitz. In the investigation found out they have a million dollar budget bribery budget. A million dollar bribery budget. Just a million bucks. Mac paid 350 grand for his brewery, 450 grand. So their yearly budget just to bribe people is more than he paid for the stinking brewery. So I found that kind of funny. So those were sort of the things that he faced. Totally unfair competition. And this was widespread. I mean, the, the investigation found that it was nationwide. It was huge with these these brewers, but it was cutthroat for any brewer, really. So if you're a, a regional brewer, man, you just don't have a chance against uh, those kind of tactics. And then advertising, obviously. Advertising is another huge one. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I think Budweiser's annual advertising budget in the mid-70s was like $17 million. Max was like 12000 <laughs> or something. So, I mean... He's not being hurt. Yeah. It's like, why even bother at that point almost? Yeah. Why even bother, right? I mean, there's the David versus Goliath and you feel really good about it. But in practical terms, man, there's just no way to win against that. Well, so ultimately, he dealt with all this bullshit and, uh, you know, the struggles mm-hmm. and finally ended up having to cease production in 72. <clears throat> Summarize it in your opinion. What was the hardest thing he had he couldn't overcome? I think he just over couldn't overcome the uh, brewing industry at the time. I think I think that it was so cutthroat and it was just, you know, the big brewers were just squeezing people, small breweries left and right. But by 1984, I think we had about like 80 brewers left in, in America at the time. And of those 80 brewers, I think like the top five accounted for 84% of all the beers sold in America. So it was just kind of a really uphill battle. For the model at the time, which is important, I'll come back to that in a minute. I don't know how, like, Yingling, I don't know how, how they're still around. I really don't. They're one of the few that made it through, right? When you had every other little brewer in the world. Your next um, book alert right there. Di- Spoiler. Died. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's written something about Yingling. Yeah, so just that I think the beer industry, the concentration of the beer industry, and working with the traditional model. So he went out of business, let's see, 73, really. Went out of business about 73. He was working with the model that... He was familiar and that they had at the time, right? He worked for Pabst. He saw what, what happened at Pabst. He saw how Pabst did business. I don't think he saw all the, the really kind of dirty underbelly. He wouldn't have seen that as like middle management, but he, he was sort of familiar with what, how beer was made with uh, how the beer industry sort of ran. But then, you know, you got Fritz Maytag buys what becomes Anchor Steam. You get New Albion and McAuliffe in what, 76, thereabouts, something like that, not, not too long afterwards. And I told you about what that, the judge had said, that it would take $35 million in about 
1953, mm-hmm. to open a, a brewery that would be able to compete, that would be competitive in America. And Maytag, he had a lot of money, but he didn't spend that kind of money. And Anchor Steam did really well. New Albion eh, did well for a while, but it ended up becoming Sierra Nevada and everything else that we know, Lagunitas and stuff like that. And I think the problem was that he just tried to compete. He tried to compete with the big brewers. I think people's secret was that it never did up until 1970, up until he bought it. They never tried, right? Mm-hmm. They said, we're going to make a keg beer, and we're going to make one really good beer. People are going to go into bars and taverns, and they're going to order people's, because that's what they've always ordered. They like it. It's a good beer. And we're going to be content with, you know, tavern-style beers. I don't know. Had he zigged and sort of zagged? I don't know if that makes sense. Had he tried to do something different? Instead of trying to do what everybody else did, he took his knowledge from Pabst and sort of did what, what you would do if you were Pabst, right? Just you on a expand, smaller scale and yeah, grow that on way. On a smaller scale, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that model just doesn't work. You can't compete with Pabst. You can't compete with Schlitz and Miller or any of the others. And so trying to play their game, it's going to inevitably end up where it ended up. I think had he tried to do something different, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I still don't think it would have been successful. I really don't. I think the industry was just too cutthroat at the time. They were just out for blood mm-hmm. trying to kill every competitor they could find. I, I don't think there's any escape from that. We can talk about, you know, the reason those Maytag and call, you know, why those sort of succeeded or those led to something else. I mean, they didn't have taps 90 miles away from their doors you know, to worry about it. And, and they never tried to do, you know, distribute, you know, and stuff like that. But yeah, Mac tried to do so. Just try a different um, model. One thing that's interesting though, is that, I mean, in a sense, I don't know that I'm actually struggling from a business perspective, whether or not I think that going black owned as a thing and trying to, I know for a minute he was trying to be the black people's beer he wanted the support of the black community i don't know if that's a terrible yeah. idea it just didn't work for him and i think that sucks but i don't know that it's necessarily working fantastically for everybody today either i know i haven't released the episode yet but i interviewed a brewery in denver that they're not out of business yet i think it'll be next month but they are a kind of a i guess latin american for lack of a better word they make chicha and poke mm-hmm. and the whole idea is it's gluten free. It's a taste of home, and psh, fuck, it didn't work for them either. You know, I, I just, I guess, right. and maybe the messages that people don't support beer along racial lines, or because even that to me makes a little more sense. And I think you talked in the book a little bit too that it really isn't a beer, wasn't then a beer that necessarily resonated or represented the black community and where marketing kind of became or turned malt liquor into that. It, it wasn't before, and so with the way right. Denver. Chicha and poke is like that's something you drink in Mexico City or if you're in South America and they still didn't support it. So I don't know. Maybe that's not a thing. Well, I mean, you can you can look at so 1969, there was a company called uh, Black Pride Beer that opened in Chicago. It, it wasn't made by black brewers. It was outsourced, as you, you put it earlier, to a, to a wide owned regional brewery and northern wisconsin or something like that but it was owned the brand was owned by by a, a group of black businessmen not unlike you know people's beer but they marketed totally I and mean, it was called black pride beer right <laughs> and and they marketed completely and this is in chicago which had a much bigger black community than milwaukee did and uh they went out of business within like a year and a half you know and they just they just couldn't sell they just didn't get the interest i don't know i i I mean i i don't know what that answer is i think it's a really unsafe bet to try to to try to rely on a niche and to try to rely on a niche population you know like so if you wanted to open up a brewery that specialized in like victorian style bitters you know (laughs) from late 19th century 
in London or something, I think that might be limiting yourself a bit, you know, and instead just make a really good beer. Now that appeals to a community. Yeah, you still got to have an IPA so, in 2023 for sure. It doesn't matter what you <laughs> Victorian IPA, Victorian yeah. bitter. Hazier the yes. better. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into kind of, I know he sued the government too. I definitely want to get into that. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take one yeah. more very last break? But before I do, I asked William, the guy we heard from in the beginning, kind of what the support of the Black-owned breweries in 2023 looked like. So I'm going to play that, take a break right after. As we become more informed consumers and we're conscious about who those breweries are, we make an effort to frequent those and become regular customers, as well as the breweries that have been very supportive of our communities all over the years. So we support, you know, in Atlanta, it's Atlantucky. They're located near the Atlanta University Center. Hip and Hops Brewery is located over on the east side of the city. Those get frequented, but we have Monday night that invested in an historically black community and they get love as well because they're here. Their taproom manager is, you know, he's an African-American man. I've known him for years, but their staff reflects where they are. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's... I think that's cool that at least it's happening in Atlanta. And I know it's happening around the country as well, but that's that's one big piece. So let's take a quick break and we'll talk about that when we get back. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down, and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbids.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. So, all right, welcome back. That uh, like, I, I think it's cool that William experienced that. Is that... I would think a, a legacy that you would would imagine that Ted would be proud of. I think so. I think so. I think that you know eventually everybody gets around to asking me why did he open this thing in the first place, and uh, I re- I don't I don't believe it was to make money. I really don't. And I don't think he. I think he wanted to grow it, but I I just believe that it was for the community. I really do. I mean, down to my down to my souls, I I I, I think that he wanted to show like the black community, what they're capable of, which was that they were able to buy this white <laughs> monolithic structure, you know, mm-hmm. and, and be able to do it themselves. And I think he, he showed from that measure, I think he was successful. So I think if he would look around and see these black entrepreneurs that opened up their own breweries, I think he would be immensely proud of, you know, what they were able to accomplish. So. Well, like I said, I was surprised because uh, I hadn't heard of the brewery until I heard your book. But a lot of these guys were inspired by that story. When I started mentioning it to William, he's like, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. And he should, better than me, right? So that's uh, it's cool. Right, right. But one thing I want to talk about, Mr. Mack got the opportunity to do one thing that many, many people wish they could do, which is sue the government, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> Obviously, under right. the circumstances, not awesome. But at the end of the day, yeah. he, he was suing the SBA, I guess, for all kinds of stuff. 
know, without going into too much of it, because I know you'd cover that in your book, and I want to make sure that people pick that book up and, and read it because I thought it was great. He was suing, it sounds like, for about $2.5 million, right? And that was 5x of what they borrowed initially because it was half a million bucks they paid for it, mm-hmm. basically. And as you hear this all the time, too, where, you know, he's in trouble. He decided to sue the government for money, but a lot of the brewery owners I know will, you know, refinance debt, bring on new investors, um, whatever they can. My question is, $2.5 million based on all the numbers that we threw out, I don't think it would have made much of a difference to you. I mean, I think it would have stayed open longer, but I'm not sure that the end would have been that dramatically different. That's a good point. I think it probably would have given them the, the opportunity to do more in the area. You know, a lot of their advertising, it seemed like this is sort of just coming to me now. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but it, it sort of seemed like t- towards the end of the campaign, they started themselves sort of consolidating and really focusing on Milwaukee. I mean, because they let their distributorships go in a lot of other places, a lot of outreaching places, because, you know, those cost money, right? To rent the space and and to pay for the trucks and to pay for the personnel and so forth. And so they started letting those go and they started really focusing on the region they were in, including Milwaukee. Even though they let the distributors go in Milwaukee, I think you realize that expanding might have been a mistake, right? Because it, it left them a bit too thin, you know, and they weren't paying for themselves. You know, it's funny. He talks about how Oshkosh came came around and towards the end, he was making more in Oshkosh and Indiana, which were the white places than he was in Milwaukee with the larger population of, of the black community. And he, he didn't understand why. I don't understand why either, but, but that's sort of, is sort of what ended up happening. And I think their idea about what their consumers could be changed a little bit too late. Right. And they understood, okay, we need to focus on these people in these areas. But by the time they, they realized that they were sort of out of money, I think the two and a half million would have helped them. I think you're right, though. I think just simply because of the time, it wasn't going to happen in 73 or 74. It might have happened in 77 or 78. Between 1970 and 1984, again, you lost still another half of the, of the brewers out there. So, yeah, I think it would have just been fading off the inevitable. I think what, what, what needed to happen was a dramatic shift in their business model and how they approached business and sort of how they identified themselves. They wanted to be or they looked at themselves as a brewery that was exactly like Pabst and Miller and all the rest, but just smaller, meaning that they could distribute, they could compete. You know, they needed to distribute rather. They needed to compete instead of saying, Let's just focus on Oshkosh, you know. Let's mm-hmm. let's get a huge group, group of people to love us in Oshkosh, and maybe grow within our community. Well, there were a lot of brands that did that, that same that, thing, especially during the time that yeah. during the 2010s, especially that you know nationwide distribution started to become a thing. Three state distribution, where uh-huh. if you can only go so deep in your given market based on competition or whatever reason, that you know there was a distributorship in Oklahoma that was glad to have your beer. You'd ship it there, and you could have some additional revenue. And I saw that happen repeatedly with other breweries too. So I don't think that was unique to him and, and or necessarily even something no one else tried. It just, I just, again, like you said, I don't think that that expansion is ever sustainable in the long term, unless you've got the cash of Budweiser, <laughs> of course, but yeah. no one does. Right, right, exactly. So yeah, I think your question's a really valid one. It's a good one. And I mean, that's the biggest, that's the, that, the hardest part of, of this book is a speculation about what if, Mm. What if this and what if that? You know, what if something had happened differently? And and I guess that's why to me it's a lot simpler just to look at it and say, well, you know, if you look at it from the point of view that he was trying to do this more of symbolism to demonstrate, you know, at the very least, you know, you could enter 
this market, right? I mean, if, if your thing is shoes, go buy a, sh- a shoe company and maybe Nike will shut you down, but you know, at least you have the ability to do it. And he wanted to show them that they have the ability to do it. They didn't have to just sit on the sidelines. You know, I opened with a quote and I love the quote from, and he said something to the effect of, you know, the white, white man will give you welfare, but you better believe they won't give you industry. In other words, you know, they'll give you handouts, but they're not going to, just give you the corporations. It's not going to give you the industry of, of the country. And the philosophy is that if, if you want that, you got to go get that yourself. So that was his philosophy. And I think this was his demonstration. Like, let me show you what I mean by that. Let me show you what you're capable of. And so he got people together and he bought, he bought an industry, you know, bought yeah. into the industry. Activism um, through capitalism. Yeah, that's exactly right. Activism through capitalism. I think, I think that was the important part. And I, you know, and I and I like to say, like, if Pabst hadn't hired him, but let's say Hush Puppies hired him instead, <laughs> you know, he might have gone and bought a shoe company instead of a instead of a beer company, right? But he knew he knew about beer enough to to buy this. He thought he knew enough about beer to to buy this company and run it. And so that's that's what he got into. It's not that the beer was secondary, but beer was the vehicle that he used to kind of demonstrate what, what they could do. He was going to do something, and that just happened to be the thing he had experience on. And I imagine that it would have been much harder to get into life insurance. <laughs> it's as stupid as that sounds. Yeah. So let's talk about like kind of how that tore down a little bit. Because to me, it, I'm a little, I have some emotions around this little piece where the SBA takes all the assets, mm-hmm. he owes money, or, or the group owes money on it, but... Some of that obviously was his own capital, but they ended up just basically selling it off for like $24,000 or something like that, demolishing the building, just completely ruining the whole thing. And I assume, and I don't know if you found this in the source material or not, but I know other breweries that have gone through this. One in Atlanta I I interviewed recently that I went out to go see, he had the same thing where the SBA sees the assets and they're going to sell it on their own. These guys have offered, the partners offered to help sell it for a higher multiple to help even move it if need be. And the SBA said, no, we're just going to basically sell for pennies on the dollar. And then you're responsible for the remainder of the debt. And they're like, well, shit, that could be 800 grand. You know what I mean? So do you know what happened to the debt? Yeah. No, uh, according to his son, they they had to pay it off. Wow. You know, they're responsible for it. They're totally on the hook. The SBA has got a really shady history. I mean, one one of the things that some of the research I did had to do for this book was researching the SBA and they've got a shady path. Anytime money... (laughs) crosses with, I think, government. You know, if you're not responsible for somehow making that money yourself, you don't care where it goes, right? I mean, why, why would you care? It's not your money. And the SBA, oh, man, it, it, it was politicized. It was used for political purposes. It's not, you know, it's not really meant for helping small businesses. It was meant for getting people elected. I mean, that that was its origin. It wasn't really meant for helping small businesses. It was meant for keeping certain presidents in power and and so forth. It's if you, if you go back and look at the history of the SBA, it's it's pretty terrible. He was a a victim, sort of, of that, because the politics that was going on at the time was Nixon was going to he he didn't want to give just give black people money, like welfare and stuff like that anymore. He wanted them to kind of quote unquote do it for themselves, you know, pull yourselves up by the bootstrap. And so we're going to make minority loans our priority for this, you know, for the Nixon administration. So if you work for the SBA, how do you show that you are making this happen? Making how do you make the president and the administration happy? You give a bunch of loans to the black community, right? By any way possible, including telling them that they can give all get all the government contracts they could possibly 
want, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll be millionaires. It doesn't matter if, if the business is viable. It doesn't matter if, if the people that are getting the loan have experience. It doesn't, you know, it, it's as shady as can be. It's just a number, right? Quantitative yeah. way to say, yeah, we're doing our job. Look how many loans we give away to minority businesses. Not look at how many minority businesses have succeeded. Just look at how many loans we've given away. And that's sort of, you know, he, he sort of became, Again, a victim to that to that program and, and to that mindset at the time. So as far as I know, they all had to pay it back um, mm-hmm. they, because they all personally guaranteed it. Not only did they have to personally guarantee it, but their wives had to personally guarantee it. <laughs> oh. So their wives were all on the hook. They were on the on the hook. You know, there's a big part of the story that deals with corruption in the SBA, especially in the Milwaukee office, which is where they were. They, that one in particular was bad, as was Chicago. Obviously, that sucks to not only lose a business, but still have to pay for it afterwards, which, you know, happens. Yeah. Did you, in talking to his son or anything that you looked up, did you get a sense of what Max emotions were kind of behind the the closing, like what, how he felt afterwards? After it was all over, he was in, in a pretty dark place. Yeah, he was he was pretty dark place for a while. Again, from what his his family told me, but you know he 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 bounced back. The guy was he was how can I put it? I guess you know <laughs> when he bought the brewery, he was able to give the company his company forty eight grand, and he was a forty year old black businessman in nineteen seventy. He saved up forty eight thousand dollars, which I think today I looked it up. It's like three hundred something thousand dollars by today's standard. Uh, I don't have any <laughs> anything like that in my bank account. So he was a better business, much better businessman than I'll probably ever ever be. And he went back to selling life insurance. He went back to uh, opening some businesses, and he was successful in his own in his own way. He never he never after it was all over. He never tried to attain anything so. High-minded, I guess, or you know, anything so lofty, I suppose. Mm-hmm. However you want to put it, he never tried to attain the, the same heights that he that he tried to with with peoples. Instead, he became a small business owner. You know, with just very humble types of businesses. I think there was like a an office supply store and a halfway house, a couple of halfway houses that he owned, and tried. He still helped people out in his community. He was still very active in, in helping um, in various organizations. So he was very his activism continue but he was much more much more humble much more happy just to kind of be with his family and have a small business after that well i would say maybe five percent of the people i've interviewed have said they would open a brewery again do you think he had any designs whatsoever to ever have done it again no he was he was done he didn't like to talk about his son his son said you know people tried to interview him before he passed and i believe 2019 and he just nope not interested didn't want to talk about it didn't have anything to do with it. It took a while before people appreciated what he, so he, he was the first black brewery president in America and people was the first black owned brewery in America. There's a couple of other stories out there that if you read my book, you'll, you'll see why, why he was the first mm-hmm. um, versus them. You know, he definitely was. And so, you know, he had a place in, in history and he just never recognized it as anything other than sort of a failure in his past that he just didn't want to worry about anymore. And it cost him, you know, I mean, it cost him after the fact he still had to pay it back. So he was certainly bitter about it. I get told no a lot when it comes to uh, interviewing and, and I have my own emotions around it too. So I totally get it. So it's, it's not something yeah. everyone's easily able to talk about. And especially, you know, he, he obviously put a lot into that. So it had to have been a, a blow to watch it crumble Especially when, in, right. in a lot of ways, I don't think it was fair. Like, I think what he was doing should have made more sense. It just, just didn't. What okay. do you think that he would have wanted us to remember about Peoples? Like, what, what do you think Ted 
thought the legacy was? And we talked a little bit about the activism piece, but I would say probably that, you know, I think he would, he would look at, you know, I think in America we have like maybe 90 breweries that are owned by people of color or people within the black community. And I think he would, he would tell them that you're capable. You can do that. He would encourage them to try. I think, you know, his quote about, you know, they'll give you welfare, but they won't give you industry. That resonates. And I, I think it resonates just as much today as it ever did in the past. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that you're capable of doing this and that you can do it. And I think, you know, the people like the gentleman that you, that you interviewed that have heard the story that, you know, that kind of take the inspiration from it. I, I'm hoping that's what they get from it. Again, I don't think it wasn't for him. It wasn't about making money, you know, and about being a success, whatever that means in, in business in America. 1970 but i think it was about trying to trying to help his community trying to trying to genuinely help him because that's sort of what he dedicated his life to before all of this afterwards he broke off from that you know he did try to help in small ways i mean he was still acting in his church and small community things but he never became a leader of like an activist leader which is sort of what he was before yeah i think that's probably what his legacy would have to be is that the activist uh, capitalist, as you as you said. From the same perspective, what are you the most proud of about the book? I know you're a very humble guy, but you, know, you can brag a little bit. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. My wife t- probably told you that. I am humble. I-, I think more than anything else, I wanted people to know who he was. You know, that's really important to me. I think you know, here's a guy that that really put it all on the line to try to do something that knew that there was a, a chance for failure, did it anyway. I think it t- took a lot more courage than I've got to do that. Man, I mean, just you think about all the safety nets we have today, right? If I fail at whatever it is I'm trying to do, there's something else that, that'll catch me if I fall. It's not a lot in 1970 for a black man to really catch you if you fall, right? You don't really have a safety net and uh, it's hard to, to pull yourself up. So he was working with a lot less than we have today in some sense. I mean, in some sense, he had a lot. I mean, he had a, a lot to draw from to invest with. He had you know, a very close to the community that, that was behind him that supported him. But in terms of like an infrastructure, he just didn't have what we've got today, right? Nobody else is doing what he did. I mean, there's no other black person that we can look at and say, hey, how did you do that? You mentioned that the gentleman earlier with the, with the brewery and there's a kind of community and they get together and they work together. There's a, the National Black Brewers Association, Brewers Association, excuse me, uh, the MBTA, you know, and it's, it's a community of black brewers, people, black people within the black community that are interested in brewing. And they're getting together and they're sharing ideas and sharing resources and so forth. He had none of that. He didn't even have the National Brewers Association. He had nothing. Craft Brewers Association. I don't know how much help they, they were to you, but he didn't even have that. That's a whole <laughs> you know? other soapbox. So, you don't want to get me started on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, he had he had nothing. So he had nobody to talk to, nobody to ask, you know, how did you do it? He was sort of a pioneer in that way. So I would just like people to, to know that, to know his name, to know Ted Mac, to know about people's beer, um, and to know his story. And so that hopefully he can, it can serve somebody who's, you know, thinking about it, you know, am I able to do this? I know your mission is to, to put real, inject realism into, into dreams, right? And I think it's, a, it's an it, absolute yeah. <laughs> balance. And I think it's an, it's a necessary, it's a necessary mission, but there, there are people that, that they don't even dream. You know what I mean? Cause before they even get there, they, oh, I can never do that. And I, and I think, you know, your philosophy is that success is, comes from measurement, right? You've got to get into these things with your eyes wide open, knowing what you can face and you've got to plan for all these things. That's sort of what you want people to do. And I think that's absolutely necessary, but I think there are people out there who 
are so discouraged that they don't even start start thinking about, could I do this? You know, some argue that it's a privilege. Being able to dream about opening a brewery, that itself yeah. is sort of a privilege that you could that you could dream about being it because there are some people that just they can't even think about getting off the street. You know what I mean? So, you know, if it inspires somebody to at least take that step to say, maybe I could do that. And then you could take those people and say, okay, let's talk about what it'll take. You know what I mean? Here's the reality of how Um, you need to do it right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. To get to that point. I think if it does that, I think that he's done his job and I've done mine. Was there anything that didn't make it into the book that uh, maybe your publisher just said, you can't put that in there or you didn't learn until after you released it? (laughs) No, actually my publisher is really good. I mean, McFarland is, is they're an academic publisher and and I'll apologize to everybody right now for the price of the book. Wasn't my idea. It's uh, it's an academic press, and so if you've ever been in college and had to pay two hundred dollars for a, a measly textbook and been like two hundred dollars, what the hell? That's the kind of press I'm dealing with. It's Forty bucks for this book. I'll tell you this: I don't see very much of it. They were really a good press. I, I worked with other presses that wanted me to change it a lot. They wanted me to take it from a story. From I, I wrote this as a narrative. I'm a, an academic, so I'm, I'm a geek. An egghead, but I, I didn't want to write this as a textbook because then nobody would read it. I wanted to write this as a story, as a narrative of what happened. But there were other presses that were much bigger presses that were like, we'll publish this, but you need to change it and make it more like a, a textbook. And I'm like, well, nobody will read it. And my point is that I want it, I want it easy to read. I want people to read it. And if I make this a book for academics, there are books about black beer out there for academics. So that's already been done. But yeah. this, I wanted to make it, I wanted to tell a story. Well, for me, it was a good mix of, I need data points as well as the narrative piece. And then I've got to have, right. you know, citations. But if it's the textbook, mm-hmm. I just won't read. I mean, that's not true. I do read it. Right. I won't tell anybody I read it because right. I'll be embarrassed. It was a textbook. But I thought your book was fantastic. <laughs> right. And it was a, it, I appreciate it kept, that. Me, Thank you. kept me interested. And I thought I told the story in a great way, which obviously is why you're the first author I've had on the show. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, it, it is what it is. I, I, I hope. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and and I hope I hope your listeners go out and look at it. The ebook is much much cheaper, <laughs> so maybe maybe get that. Well, I'll um, link I'll link all that I in hope, the show notes. Where where can they get it? I think it's on Amazon as well as. Does it matter to you where they purchase yeah. it? No, it doesn't matter to me. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, it's on all the the websites. You won't find it in any stores. A few independent stores, Underground Books in Sacramento, is carrying it, and, and um, I'm hoping some other independent stores. We'll carry it. And uh, I'm hoping to do some signings at, at some breweries coming up as this goes forward. It sort of makes sense to sort of do a presentation. And Sounds like Atlanta's got a good community, so maybe check those guys out. Yeah, you know, drop me a line if, if anybody has any questions or wants to hear some more about it. I'd, I'd be happy to Okay. Do you answer. want me to link your emails? Are the easiest way? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, my NMSU email is, is, is probably the best way. So what's next for you? Any other books in the works? Gosh, you know, I, I'm, six years I've is a big commitment. A, I, I write a lot. Six years is a lot. Yeah. It takes, <laughs> I don't know if I could put another six years and I'll be retired by then. I got into all of this because I, I used to write for the Huffington Post about liquor and travel and spirits and stuff like that. I write for a, a magazine called Barleycorn drinks. I write about whiskey and, and, and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll probably, and my, my article writing has sort of taken a backseat to this. So I've, I've been doing a lot less and they've been a lot, they've been a lot thinner. Their articles have been a lot thinner. So I'll probably take some time to do some more long form articles, with some different outlets still within the industry, beer or spirits or wine or something like that. Got a few ideas of things I want to write about. So you'll, you'll probably see me around if you, if you read this kind of stuff on the internet. 
yeah. in magazines. Um, again, I appreciate you sharing the story. I appreciate you uh, writing the book. I think it was a story that needed to be told, and, and the way you did it, I think, is inspirational. And I, I do recommend everyone pick the book up. Thanks a lot. We'll get you back to your life. All right. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.